0: hi welcome back to therapy chat today i'm super excited to be bringing you an interview with two very interesting people i am talking with paula scataloni and rachel lewis marlowe who developed embodied recovery paula and rachel thank you so much for being on therapy chat today Thank you, Laura.
2: Thank you. Very cool to be here. We're pleased to be here.
0: Yeah. It's very cool for me too, because I'm really curious to learn about your model, Embodied Recovery. I had heard about it from a friend who took your training and said how wonderful it was. Um, And she's a fellow student in sensory motor psychotherapy. So when she was telling me how great it was, I was really curious and then, we got connected. And I just can't wait for our audience to hear what you guys have put together. And let's just start off, if you will, by each of you telling our audience a little bit about yourselves and the work you do.
1: Okay. Uh, So this is Rachel. And I guess I will start the little bit of my story on how I got to where we are. And first, I, maybe we should say that embodied recovery is a model that we have synthesized, bringing kind of weaving together a lot of different work that we have studied over many years for the um, treatment of eating disorders. So um, it is a it's a trauma informed and a relationally oriented and a somatically integrative model for treating eating disorders. And so maybe I'll just start by talking about the the, the different threads that I've been gathering over the years that I've been bringing to the tapestry that we've woven together. I think I have always been been weaving the body and the mind together. And one of my Sort of earliest memories of this was actually coming back from dance class when I was probably about seven, and telling my mom that I wanted to be a psychiatrist, and you know that it was just always this way that I was fascinated by both how the body expressed itself and how the mind and emotions expressed themselves. So I, throughout my my life, I I, I studied dance um, and movement. Um, I when I went away to college. I started my undergraduate degree as a psychology major, and then I transferred and finished my undergraduate work as a dance major. And after that, I danced um, professionally and taught movement, and then from there got into therapeutic massage and body work. And so I have been a licensed massage and body work therapist for about 30 years now and studied a a wide variety of hands-on work, including craniosacral therapy, uh, energetic osteopathy, body-mind centering, anyway, you know, a lot of different kinds of body work. And then eventually got to a place with the body work where I realized it's not, I needed, I needed more. I needed to help understand, one, how the principles that I use to facilitate change in the body could be applied to other realms of who we are as human beings, to to our emotions, to our thoughts. And that changes in the body were temporary if there weren't corresponding changes to how we inhabit that body and how we inhabit the world that are held in in our thoughts and our emotions. So I went back to graduate school in my early 40s to get my master's in counseling. Oh. And after graduating, after I finished my, my master's degree, I then went into, I got hooked up with sensory motor work. And that was really what brought me to work with eating disorders is that I had the good fortune of being contacted by an eating disorder treatment program here in North Carolina that was very interested in how to work with trauma, and I was very interested in how to bring a body focus to people with eating disorders because that is where, um, that's sort of the battleground of where the their, their struggles are showing up, and so I started working with eating disorders and continued my training with sensory motor, finally becoming certified, and um, at the at the the, um, eating disorder treatment started to develop a way of bringing more embodiment and um, movement and linking it all together with working with eating disorders. And that is actually where Paula and I started to intersect. So why don't I pass it over to Paula now?
2: Sure. So yes, Rachel and I met as I was coming in to lead a dance class at the treatment center. She would be leaving. And so we were (laughs) ships in the night for many years. but my path is somewhat different. I have been working in the field of the eating disorders for about two decades and so have really watched the field evolve and you know, primarily as a cognitive therapist, um, but always had a inkling for the experiential. And so in Hawaii where I was um, completing my master's degree, I'm a social worker, I was fortunate enough to um, know Anita Johnston, who's a well-known in the field of eating disorders. And <clears throat> she approached me about opening an IOP clinic, which had never been done at the time. So it was that journey for me and, and learning from Anita um, to see eating disorders through the lens of metaphor and having a lot of space to work experientially with the clients that I think I began to work with the eating disorders very differently than cognitively, and I have a background in dance and I'm also in in my own recovery. And I think that that influenced what, I think it influenced my perception of healing and and that eating disorder recovery is much more than just symptom remission. And so I, I think that I had already felt that, you know, way back when I was working with Anita. And so my approach was always very holistic. And uh, at some point in Hawaii, in our treatment center, I had this feeling that we were talking about body image a lot and talking about the body, but we weren't actually working in the body. So it just felt so ironic to me (laughs) that the body was missing in eating disorder treatment. (laughs) So I thought this can't be something's, something's askew here. So I left Hawaii. And that's when I began my journey. I studied more movement type methods at Kripalu. I um, dabbled in dance therapy and eventually stumbled into somatic experiencing. And that for me, from the minute I walked in, I realized this is the missing piece. And I began to study the physiology of regulation. And uh, that's, my piece that I weave in um, to embodied recovery and continue to find it fascinating to explore the way our early physiology, all the way from in utero, uh, experiences, influences our capacity to regulate. So I come at it from a very different place. And as I continue on my journey, I'm pulled more and more into the body worker aspect of the work. And so somewhere down the line, Rachel and I will meet <laughs> and we'll, you know, end up with sort of the same, you know, credentials. Just we, we came at it from very different ways.
0: Oh, it's so beautiful. What a, a wonderful melding of two perspectives. <laughs> so it's like you're coming from the opposite ends of the spectrum together to a place where it's all blended together. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it really is sort of like, the, what is it, the warp and the, and the weave of, 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 a, of a tapestry. We've just come at it sort of from different angles, but it's, you know, we bring it together and it's making this really lovely container for some pretty dynamic work.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. And I love your use of that metaphor about weaving too, as during the time we've been talking. Well, thank you for sharing about your backgrounds. And I, I love the way you described in such detail how you came to be where you are. So can you tell us, I guess you kind of touched on why there was a need for this model, but can you talk more about kind of trauma-informed eating disorder work from a somatic lens, relational? Can you kind of go into that more and talk about how this all comes out? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. sure what does it look like
1: (laughs) yeah yeah so i think in one of the ways that might be the easiest for us to talk about it is a little bit in how it's how our approach is a little bit different from what we traditionally are doing perfect and there there are four points that we that we that when we introduce the model do you want to start yeah so i'll
2: start so eating disorder treatment has historically been a biopsychosocial model And so what we do, and that means that primarily the bio part of that um, is that the focus of healing is on restoration of nutrition, and then maybe um, psychopharmacology. That's the bio part.
1: So the way that the body is included are in those two
2: realms. Yeah. And so our model, we call a somato psychosocial model. So we're going to expand beyond nutrition, beyond medication to look at birth history, kinesiology, somatic organization, sensory system, right? Different things that influence our capacity to be embodied, to regulate, to be in relationship with self, to be in relationship with others. So beyond beyond food and beyond medication. And I think that one
1: of the strengths of doing this is that it really allows for an active bottom up processing part in the treatment of eating disorders where we're expanding the way in which we're working with the body and we're really emphasizing that change, sustainable change has to include a bottom up process. One of the things that is true in eating disorder treatment is that um, there's a high recidivism rate and as wonderful as DBT is, and it's used a lot in eating disorder treatment. One of the challenges that we often see is that we have people who they know what they're supposed to do. <laughs> they know the skills, but, but they're holding it in their head and their cognition. And when their body is organized from a place of neurological disorganization due to embedded trauma or attachment deficits, They don't have access to cognition as a driving force for change. So we have to really weave in the bottom-up process. And that is why we want to really expand the role of the body and talk about it from a somatic perspective as opposed to just a biological perspective.
2: Yeah, I think one more piece of that is we, as the trauma field, provided us, particularly Stephen Porges, um, providing us with an understanding of the polyvagal theory and threat response, uh, Peter Levine's contribution, we now understand sort of some of the building blocks of regulation and also the impact of trauma on regulation. And um, so that affords us some new ways of working with clients, as Rachel said, if we're trying to utilize cognitive strategies, but the person is out of their, what Dan Siegel calls the window of tolerance, their prefrontal cortex is not available to take in the cognitive strategies. So the science helps us to understand why the treatment methods we have aren't working so well. I think there's actually one last
1: thing that I would I would say is that we're also, since we're emphasizing bottom up, we're recognizing that if The body is not organized to support effective digestion, then the body is not organized to support what is called normative eating, or what we might think of as an accurate body perception. And so because because we're mammals, or as mammals, our digestive system and our attachment system are, are neurologically linked. And when there are conditions on attachment, we're gonna see that reflected in our in our digestive system. And when we are not able to attach and are in a defensive mode, we are not gonna be able to digest food. We aren't gonna get the right signals about ingesting food or have the same experience of effective elimination. So the whole process gets um gets affected when we are operating in a in defense mode rather than in healthy attachment
0: does that all make sense yes although I do want to ask you to clarify a couple of things yes yeah. that was so rich what you were just saying and I want to be sure that everyone who's listening gets the full picture of what you're what you're explaining here so I was kind of jotting down a couple of things I wanted to ask yeah. you and I may not have the full wording. You were talking about, going back to when Paula mentioned DBT, I totally understand, and we've talked about on therapy chat many times, the fact that, you know, what your body, when your body's responding to trauma or attachment wounding, you know, you can't access the skills. You know, when you're in that trauma response, you can't access cognition a lot of times. And, you know, which I think leads a lot of people to feeling shame. Like, I know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know why I'm not doing it. Yeah. You know, and self-blame. And that even obviously can trigger maladaptive ways of coping. But when you talked about neurological disorganization, I know that those concepts of how the body is organized or how the person organizes are known to many of us, but a lot of people also don't know what that means. Can you kind of go into a little more depth just explaining kind of how you see that and how it relates. Hmm. Yeah.
1: So maybe what I'll try and do is give my my elevator
0: uh explanation of polyvagal theory. Wonderful. Um, I haven't had right. Stephen Burgess so, on here yet. So you can you can do do your best.
1: <laughs> right, right. If he hears this, yes. he, may, he may call you up yeah. and say, well, can I clarify <laughs> a few things? Uh, I hope so. I hope that will happen. Right. So Basically, the way I explain this to 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 clients and family members, and then in our training um, with therapists, is that you know we have these different ways of of functioning in our body, and many people have you know are familiar with sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. You know that there's a part of us that gets ready to 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 engage in an active way, and then that part that is more organized for rest and digest, and that. There's this, um, there's this way in which that sympathetic and parasympathetic function can be held in balance, right? And in that state of balance, we have the capacity for effective digestion. Right and engagement in our world. We can even set boundaries. We can invite people in. We can we can you know sort of establish our limits. But we're really able to engage, and and that's where we might be inside our window of tolerance, right? And and that is where we might consider normative eating is is, is available. Now, when we get when we neurocept, when our, when uh, we're taking an information through our sensory system that is telling us, you know what, I, this is not a good place to engage. This isn't a safe place to land or there's an actual threat coming in. Like there's not enough support for me to land, which would be our attachment system, or there's a danger that's coming in, which would then in, you know, kind of invite our, our defense system. Could you give a couple of quick examples, like what, just so people can picture it? So, from an eating disorder perspective, maybe I should talk about, like, so the metaphor I use in this book chapter that that um, I I contributed to a book that's coming out in the in fall or in August in August, August August is I talk about like um, sharks and boats, and how if you're swimming and there's a shark in the water right? You're going to need to get away from the shark, right? But also if you're swimming in the water, you're going to need to be able to get to a boat and without a boat there and you're swimming in deep water, you're not really safe, right? You can't, you can't, if you can't get to the boat, but also if you can't get away from the shark, but those are two different systems that we have. One is that we're organized to move towards something, and one is we're organized to separate and move away from something, right? And we need to be able to engage our sympathetic in a a balanced way, be effective in in that. Now, when when we start to neurocept, okay, wait, there's a shark and this is dangerous, what happens is our ventral vagal nerves, This is where I'm starting to butcher things. So, <laughs> stay, stay with me. Our, what we call our social engagement system, right, kind of sends a, a signal to our brain that's like, okay, we got to get out of here. And we go into our animal defenses that are going to be our fight, flight, freeze, and feign death, right, to keep us safe in the presence of danger. And our frontal cortex is going to go offline and our digestive system is going to go offline, right? Because you're not going to sit around and take pain out like, oh, yeah, I got to swim from this shark, but first let me eat a snack. It's like, no, all of your energy is going to go to mobilize to defense. Does that make sense so far?
0: Totally. Therapists, we've all had that moment. You wake up in the middle of the night. Oh, my gosh. Did I do my notes? Well, you don't have to worry about that anymore when you use therapy notes. Therapy notes makes it easy to write your notes, get them done quickly, but thoroughly. My group practice has used therapy notes for six years, and everyone always finds it easy to use. but the best thing is, if you do need help, you can call their customer service number and a person answers the phone and time I've ever had to use it, which is maybe three times in the past six years, my issue has been resolved easily with a cheerful demeanor in 15 minutes or less. So I highly recommend Therapy Notes and don't forget go to therapynotes.com and use promo code chat to get 2 free months. Okay.
1: Now, if I need to like if if I need to be able to not just get away from the shark, but I need to get to the boat. I need to be able to, to attach in order to, again, be able to engage in those life-sustaining and, and um, life-enhancing activities, right? If I can't actually get to the boat, or then I'm not going to be able to also, my digestive system's not going to be available. Right. I, you know, I've got to be able to land and, and take in the nourishment of the attachment system.
0: Yeah. So it's like, until you are safe away from the danger, even knowing that you're going to be okay and there aren't any more sharks.
1: Right. Right. I've got to really be able to land in safety. Then my system can go, oh, okay. Yeah. And, and what happens is that yeah, and that, that's when our ventral vagal system will come back online and go, oh, okay, yeah, I'm safe. I can feel that. And my digestive system will come back online. Okay. And what happens is that we have conditions for attachment, right? Like there, are, there may be you know, certain things like, yeah, you can come on the boat as long as you are really funny <laughs> or as long as you don't ever show get angry or as long as you are heterosexual or as long as you keep your room neat, whatever it is, whatever those kind of like attachment conditions are that let us know we are welcome in the world. So we're going to, we are going to adapt to the rules of attachment that let us get on those, but that boat, those rules what we have to do in order to get on the boat are going to be reflected in our relationship with food that's deep <laughs> Did everybody get that that's deep you know that's that's the that's the link of the attachment and 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 digestive system Wow
2: okay. and can I add <laughs> yeah, I'm you're blowing my mind S-E-B-I-S-E. so if there is a trauma physiology in the body maybe something what i you know hypothesize is there's a lot of undiagnosed birth trauma absolutely in, in people with eating disorders yeah. and so we've got this what we used to call in the field temperament or they've got this sensitive temperament or this disposition mm-hmm. which i don't think is the case now i think it's something happened and so they are there's trauma in the physiology that impacts the sensory system and yeah. it, you basically clients with eating disorders can feel like they're walking around without skin. They're taking in everything around them. Mm-hmm. And then it's difficult to know what when they feel dysregulation inside, is this mine or is this what I've taken in? Mm-hmm. And they all they feel is the dysregulation and they want to get away from it. So they develop management strategies or defensive responses to get away from the dysregulated physiology and those behaviors, eating, not eating, exercising, help the person to feel as if they're coming back into the window, but it's really uh, the illusion of coming back into the window of tolerance. And so they it perpetuates. And then as the eating disorder kicks in and becomes more entrenched, that sustains the um, physiology of fight or flight. And so the, they can never quite get out of that cycle.
0: Wow. And what you're saying, too, when you're talking about undiagnosed birth trauma, and previously you mentioned in utero, you know, Mm -hmm. there's so much potential trauma in utero that Mm -hmm. the child may never be able to, or the, you know, adult who's looking back, may never be able to know that it happened.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was doing a a family day presentation at um, this eating disorder treatment facility and was talking with families. And we were was talking about this prevalence of, of birth trauma and people's jaws were just dropping. And then one of the, the, the moms said, can I just ask, you know, all of the people here, you know, did your kid have any birth trauma? And it was like 75% of the families there, their child had experienced some kind of birth trauma. And they'd never really thought about it, but they'd always known, you know, gosh, this kid is really, really sensitive, you know, and, and I think what Paul is saying is that when our sensory systems aren't organized, and really integrated, we don't know, everything. feels like a shark, you know, the water itself feels like a shark. And we can't necessarily recognize that the boat isn't a shark, or vice versa, Ooh. everything feels like a boat, and you don't realize that it's actually a shark.
0: I love these metaphors i to talk to you all day. <laughs> it's like poetry. I'm thinking about also colic. Yeah. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yes. You know,
0: it's always like, oh, he was a colicky baby, you know, and it's like, well, we don't know what causes colic and, you know, but mm-hmm.
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: And also I've had, um, a few people I've worked with who have, who had pyloric stenosis and, You know, when they were babies, you know what that is? Mm -hmm. No. Well, my understanding is that it's where the esophagus isn't attached to the stomach. And Mm. so the food's going in, but it's not nourishing the baby. And so the baby's starving. And it kind of just forms as this little pouch under the, I don't know where it goes. It's just like under the skin or something. Mm. I guess it's not under the skin. I don't know. It's like some little pouch. It's not getting to the baby and so they can die. If it's not Mm -hmm. caught, but of course, first they're feeding and not getting any nutrition from it. And then once it's found, they have to have surgery to correct it, Mm -hmm. you know, and this is in the first six weeks of life. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And, and from an SC perspective, early surgery before age three Mm -hmm. is, is devastating, can be, can be devastating. You know, there's certainly people that have early surgery, but it's, that's very fragile time period yeah. be before the hippocampus and everything's on board to make sense. Right. And I, I think I, I want to just say one thing is that
1: this it, eating disorders are very dynamic and complex. There, it's a rich kind of, again, it's a, it's its own kind of weaving. And so it doesn't mean that just because you've had birth trauma, this is going to happen, but it is to say that how, like any trauma, it's not, just the event but what happens next that that makes a difference that if there is not a robust attachment system for you to come back into after the traumatic events then that physiology of disorganized your disorganized physiology is what is what becomes your norm and that's how you start to to navigate the world from that place. So um, that's the other, you know, why the the psychosocial part of the model is really, really essential. But we've got to look at how it weaves with the body, not just with like the thoughts. I mean, so often we'll hear people say, well, I know my parents love me, or I know that I'm supposed to feel this way or that way, but I don't feel it. It doesn't feel true to me. And I think another part of, of, a big part of our model is, Recovery is about embodiment. It's not about symptom reduction. It's not about just because you're eating or you're doing the right behaviors. It's about how embodied are you, and and that someone's truth is really when it's the alignment of their cognition, their affect, and their somatic organization. When that's all congruent, something is true. And if if, if your somatic organization isn't aligned with the thoughts, it's not going to feel true to you.
0: So it's basically that the body work and the body understanding of what's being held in the body and the way traumatic responses and attachment, unmet attachment needs are held in the body is the part that hasn't been present in traditional methods of working with eating disorders. Yes, Yes, Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And
2: how all of those impact the level of embodiment. And when you're disembodied, what happens with body image distortion is that when you're disembodied, you go outside of yourself to discern who you are. Mm -hmm. So, Walter Kay's work in the book Decoding Anorexia has a lot of great information about the insula and the importance of the insula in eating disorder treatment. And we just take that a step further. I mean, they might say, you know, clients need to go do yoga. Yoga is helpful, which is true. But um, I think we need to take it a step further to really enhance the subjective experience of the self at all levels, emotional, physical, spiritual. And as that heals, then the level of embodiment shifts and perception of self starts to, to become subjective again so then body image shifts as a result
0: This is fascinating. <laughs> the, the third part of the model
1: or sort of our third principle it kind of goes with this idea that recovery is not just about getting rid of the symptoms that it's really that often we, we think about people, People eating disorder symptoms are sort of a commentary on their body, right? It's like, well, I don't like my body, therefore I don't want to eat. And what we do is really flip that one 180 degrees and say that, that eating disorder behaviors are actually the body itself speaking. It's not speaking about the body. It's the body speaking. And it's speaking specifically about how I make sense of the world whether or not i feel safe in the world and what i need in order to thrive in the world to more fully attach and engage and so what we're doing is helping people learn the language of the body how do we start to decode it and so like for example i was working with a young woman who you know was saying oh, i don't want to take in any more any more calories because i don't want to gain any weight and so, you know, finishing my meals is really hard. And, and so we kind of stayed with that a little bit. And what we're thinking about, and when we start to decode that a little bit, it's like, oh, okay, so you don't want to take in more energy. You know, it's like, and, and one of the things that happens with her is that her, body, her system gets overwhelmed because of all of the emotion and, and, and activity around her that she is absorbing. Right. So she doesn't have these kind of emotional and energetic boundaries where she's not taking in and carrying, therefore carrying the weight of what's going on in her family system. You know, and so it's like the eating disorder thoughts are the best way they have to explain a somatic experience of an emotional or social relationship. Did that make sense?
0: Yeah, it makes sense. But I would love for you to expand a little more on just that last sentence you said, that the eating disorder language is a way to explain.
1: It's our best attempt at making meaning of a physical experience that is the experience of a social interaction, not a nutritional interaction. So when I'm feeling like the burden of the weight of, and we've got a lot of kids who are feeling the weight of the world right now. Mm-hmm. And their anxiety is huge mm-hmm. because they're feeling the weight of the world. Now, what that feels like is a heaviness in their body. And there can be this attempt at regulating their physiology through food that, or, or, or exercise that is an attempt at Managing this sense that they are carrying adult burdens, and if we can, instead of just saying, "Well, if we if all we were doing is focusing on their meal plan and are you are you following your meal plan and are you using your DBTs to handle the distress that you feel when you when you're eating," you know, we aren't really helping them decode what's going on and where they're feeling where are they feeling undernourished socially or, or emotionally mm. or where are they feeling overfed socially or
0: emotionally did that make
2: any more sense oh yeah
0: okay Maybe i mean I'll this watch. is like yeah. so thought-provoking
2: <laughs> my what i find i talk to clients a lot about is that the especially when we're talking about that early dysregulation that we call high global activation in se um, where it's the, the whole system is, is the dysregulation is global. It's everywhere. And so, um, when you start to teach the, teach clients how to identify it, witness it, and, um, almost siphon it out of the body, their thoughts start to slow down. It's fascinating. And I think that's a big jump in the field because the field of eating disorders, we're trained to follow the thoughts. mm mm-hmm. And in working with me, I might acknowledge the thought, but um, if I have the client talk more about the thought, they'll get more dysregulated. So instead, we focus on where, where is the regulation in the system? How do we use the body? And resource the body to bring the client into more of a experience of regulation through a lot of um, methods that an occupational therapist might use to support children that are dysregulated and um, they're pretty surprised by its effectiveness and they don't need to think they don't it's not a thoughtful intervention they just need to grab the weighted blanket or the physio ball or the Pilates band or
0: mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm.
2: And that's sort of the last
1: component of the model is that we really look at the body as, as a resource to change and to um, to recovery as opposed to sort of this obstacle that people have to somehow overcome. And we look at how are the ways that we can we can directly resource the body so that we're increasing capacity for effective Attachment, effective defense, effective nutrition, effective emotional regulation. Um, and as, as Paula was saying, there's all of these different ways that we, we work with the body to help build capacity. And that's where some of the, the, the movement comes in, some of the, the hands on work can come in, the aromatherapy, the sound, the acupuncture, the yoga. You know, diff, just a wide variety of ways of bringing people into a um, mindful movement. Um, there's a, a real big um, struggle, I think, in traditional eating disorder mm-hmm. treatment about how do we bring, what do we do with people who, who move? You know, there's a, a, often people exhibit exercise addictions or what are labeled as exercise addictions. And again, if we don't understand how the body speaks through movement, we may not really be understanding what that movement, the function of it, and you know that eating disorder cognition is. Well, I I I have to burn calories, but that's that's not usually what it's really about. But that's that's the only explanation they have. Once we really sit with it and listen and bring curiosity to it, we can unpack it and find that that movement has all kinds of, of functions. You know, one of the first questions we might ask is, so when you're running are you running away from something or towards something? And it's really interesting, you know, if someone says, well, I'm running towards something, then we might say, well, how do you know when you get there? And then we know we're in the attachment field. If they're running away from something, you know, well, how do you know when you're far enough away? And we know we're in the defensive system. This is really cool.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So where do people have the opportunity to do treatment using Embodied Recovery? Is it only in treatment centers? No. Um,
2: so we have started to train staff in treatment centers, but the majority of the people coming to our trainings are professionals in private practice, dietitians as well as therapists, and all types of therapists, some with somatic training, that want to learn specifically about eating disorders, and then others who have no background in somatic therapy, and even folks that don't have a background in eating disorders, but they're beginning their journey.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: Yeah, and we've worked with, like, LMFTs, Mm -hmm. social workers, uh, support staff at treatment centers, a wide variety of folks.
0: Can therapists who don't have a background in eating disorders, do you think they would get the basic knowledge they would need for that work through your training, or should they do something else first?
2: What I've tried to do, hopefully this year it will be ready, is a webinar, a short webinar, maybe in 90 minutes or an hour of an overview of the field of eating disorders, just so they have enough to enter in. And in the training, I talk a lot about the field and where we're at and what might be different. So I try to fill in the holes.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the other thing that we've we've found is that we've had a number of folks who uh, work with addictions who've also come to our training because there's often dual diagnoses mm-hmm. um, with eating disorder and addiction, and pretty consistently we we get feedback from them like, oh, this really works with addictions as well, or you know. The, there's applications for so many different um, populations um, because truthfully, attachment and trauma are, you know, pretty much there. Universal. <laughs> it, it, it's pretty universal. Yeah. You know, because we're, yeah, it, it's what builds resilience or, or reduces resiliency. So, um, and that can, is going to show up in lots of different ways for lots of different people. So. We do, we're talk. We're, we apply this, you know, sort of through the lens of eating disorders, but we've also gotten feedback that it's applicable in a lot of other.
0: That's wonderful. I'm a little, I hate to say I'm a little dismayed because I feel like now I have another training I have to do. <laughs> 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 Not sure how I'm going to find the time, but it must happen.
1: Well, we would love to have yes. you. We'd yeah. love to have you.
0: So how can people who are listening who want to get this training or learn more about it, whether it's for themselves as a possible patient or as a therapist who wants, or nutritionist or other helping professional who wants to get involved in doing the work, where would they find you all and what you're doing?
2: Well, our website is a good place to start, www.embodiedrecovery.org. And we have a training section where we list the trainings for the upcoming year. Um, Right now, Durham will probably have Durham, North Carolina, fall training. And we're set to travel outside of the state in 2019. So we do travel. We also have, as Rachel mentioned, book chapters coming out. There's a book book titled Trauma-Informed Approaches for Eating Disorders, which is, I think, a groundbreaking book in that it brings all of the latest neuroscience into the discussion and covers a lot of different types of trauma therapy, but you'll see our model embedded in that in those chapters
1: as well. Although, just to be clear, we're so Paula wrote a chapter that's yes. primarily on um, somatic experiencing and mine is from the sensory motor psychotherapy perspective, it's, which is a good bit of what embodied recovery is. But we're also weaving in other models as well. So hmm. it's not specifically chapters on embodied recovery, but a couple of elements of embodied recovery.
0: Awesome. Well, I know people are going to be looking for when you're going to have your book so they can buy it. <laughs> But then when that happens, we'll just have to have you come back and talk about it on Therapy Chat again. Sounds good. (laughs) Paula and Rachel, thank you so much for coming on Therapy Chat today. This has been so fascinating. I'm really not kidding when I say that I'm going to be digging in soon. And I'm sure that many people who are listening have been hanging on to every word.
2: Well, thank you so much, Laura. This has been a real treat. Yeah, We've enjoyed it. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for the
0: work you're doing. Mm -hmm. Back at you. <laughs> Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of five stars on Trustpilot and has a five-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code chat at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to TraumaTherapistNetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit TherapyChatPodcast.com.